Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do about it. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer at Clemson University. So our question today is about Donald Trump's impact on the Republican Party over a year after he's left office. And I uh, designed this topic very self-servingly because I wrote a piece at 538 about it about a week ago. We're recording. Great piece. Thank you. We're recording on March 24th, 2022. And essentially, you know, here's here's kind of how we're thinking about this. Trump remains very influential and popular in the GOP. He won the February CPAC straw poll for the, the 2024 nomination. He holds rallies. He endorses candidates and withdraws those endorsements if he doesn't like what the candidates say. And a substantial number of Republicans still believe that he won the 2020 election. So in a lot of ways, it seems like this is really Trump's party. But on the other hand, by definition, parties don't really belong to anyone. And there's a lot of ambitious GOP candidates seeking office, in office, and including several from Trump's own administration and elsewhere who look like they might have presidential ambitions. So one question is whether any of these candidates can beat Trump if he if he does decide to run. But also, I'm interested in thinking about kind of going beyond the, the binary of is this Trump's party or not, and looking at the ways in which Trump and Trumpism have, have shaped the contemporary GOP and how these ideas have evolved since Trump really came on the mainstream political party scene in 2015. I've been thinking a lot about this this, this week as... We have some very heated and often, I think, racist kinds of comments at Katanji Brown Jackson's hearings for confirmation as a Supreme Court justice. Is this evidence of a kind of Trumpist party that Ted Cruz is confronting her about critical race theory? How has Trumpism shaped the GOP response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and put Republicans in a tight spot? So I really want to get at some of these other deeper questions. But first, I want to start with the big and the simple question. Will Trump be the 2024 nominee? James, you want to get us started? I don't know. How's that? Make a, make that a work? prediction. You I think that's the only right answer to this question. I'm going to say I, no. I think it's... Well, their guesses or their their educated guesses, but you know we can't predict the future. But we can read the tea leaves, so to speak, and try to look at the patterns and trends and say this is more likely to happen or not. But you know, at this point, I I don't know. I I my gut tells me that he won't run. But I want to warn everybody out there: whenever I say something like that about a presidential election, I have always been wrong. So I have a great deal of humility here. Lee, I, I I don't I don't think he will be the nominee. You think he'll run? No. Do you want to explain your answer? I think he knows he lost. Yeah, I agree with uh, that. He doesn't want to run again and lose. And you know, the thing with Trump is his power comes from the fact that you know you can't go up against him and lose. But what's happening now is that people are, are starting to take attacks at him. Uh, and uh, you know, particularly DeSantis, but you know, uh, others are, are starting to confront him. And as more people confront him, more people will see that it's okay to confront him. And it turns out that uh, you know, his power is entirely based around the fact that nobody challenges him. 
But as people start to challenge him, I, I think his power starts to weaken. I'm pretty sure that most of the big GOP donors, with maybe a few exceptions, really don't want him to be the nominee. He does well in the, the small donor fundraising, but there's other folks in the in the GOP uh, top talent echelon who uh, the donors would much prefer. And I think DeSantis has clearly come out of the gate as a as a leader uh, and is is you know, I, I think you know, I mean it's not not the most doesn't have Trump's charisma, but you know the, the Trump choke is getting kind of old and Trump doesn't want to enter a, a race he can't win, I, I think. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it, so we <laughs> um, we all know it's it's pretty unlikely for presidents to serve non-consecutive terms. Grover Cleveland, the only president ever to do that. So we're sort of looking at that kind of scenario. And that's a good comparison in some ways, because you had a very kind of close and oddly fluid set of elections there. And I think that that's, I mean, that is sort of the, the critical piece of this in terms of thinking about Trump's political magic that everyone came away from 2016 saying what a you know stunning upset and so there must be something going on here and the reality is it was just kind of like a couple dice rolls i think that went the right way and i wonder this is a bigger question but i do wonder the extent to which presidential elections from here on out for the foreseeable future are just going to essentially come down to like 20,000 votes in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Ohio that are going to be sort of barometers on the status quo slash turnout slash a bunch of random factors. And that's what our politics is going to turn on. And then almost anyone can win under those conditions. Julia, can I, I just want to interject real quick, because as you're saying this, I'm, I'm thinking back to, to graduate school. And I, and I hear one of my professors vividly saying the era of landslide elections is over. And I think that's right, but it's right until it's not right. Right. Yeah, that's, you know, so, that's true. It's going to be, I think we're in a transition period, a period of change. So here's kind of how I've been thinking about this, though. So this piece I wrote about Trump was actually a follow-up to a piece I wrote a year ago about Trump. And one of the things that I pointed out there was, like, it's not super obvious that Trumpism is is a winning electoral brand at the general election level. There is some evidence that it can do well. And DeSantis winning in Florida is a you know, is, is not bad evidence of, of that. Um, but on the other hand, now writing this in 2022, we're looking at, you know, Glenn Youngkin kind of ran as this, you know, some of Trump's ideas without some of Trump's edge that scared off more moderate voters. He was able to win in Virginia quite narrowly, but able to do it. But, at, you know, as a governing philosophy, it feels like it's not necessarily going that well. And this is where I want to get into this question of changing Trumpism, because I essentially see two ways that politicians are trying to adapt Trumpism to 2022. In one way, I identified DeSantis with this, a number of of senators and members of the House who are trying to out-Trump Trump. I think that's one of the you know, one of the ways to interpret Trumpism is to take it further. The other way, and you see this with Mike Pence, with Chris Christie, with Nikki Haley, is trying to adapt a kind of fundamentally Trumpist view of conservatism and Republicanism, but kind of trying to like shave off the sharp edges to accept the results of the 2020 election, maybe to move away from not so much Trump's stances, but his style and the way that he would tweet and argue with people and things like that. 
And so I see these kind of two interpretations possibly coming at each other. And, you know, so in one ways, it's very much Trump's party. Everyone is is arguing about who is the true interpreter of the Trump ideological faith. Um, but, it, it, but it also edges out Trump because it's you've got a lot of people vying for those ideological positions. What do we think about that? Lee, go ahead. So I, I think that's that's super interesting. And that's a, a very good distinction. And the sort of Mike Pence version of Trumpism, you know, I, I think resonates with a lot of folks in the sort of Republican establishment who would say something like, well, I don't like the guy. He's crude. I hate his tweets, but I like his policies. And you know, so if we could have somebody who just has his policies, which, you know, are, are kind of a continuation of the the standard Republican playbook with maybe a little little bit less support for, you know, free trade or, you know, but like, you know, basically a continuation then, you know, great. And, and I don't think that's where a lot of the voters in the Republican Party are. Then you know, I, th- I think the other side of that is, you know, what policies? I like Trump because he's angry like I am and he's fighting the damn libs and he's owning the libs. And that, that seems to me where a lot more of the Republican electorate is. And that's what I think accounts for Trump's success is it's not about the policies. It's about fighting back, you know, and the, and the more you know, more Trump fights back and, and, and gets under the skin of the liberals, you know, all the better. And that's what DeSantis seems to be excelling at and, and a few others are trying to do. So I, I don't think you can have it both ways. And then I guess there's the, the sort of other you know, maybe the, the Larry Hogan, you know, lane, which is more like the, well, maybe that we should just be like the, the more moderate Republican Party of old, and that's the way to win. But it's not, not clear that he has any path. And, you know, what Trump kind of did, I think, is, you know, he, he united the kind of Pence swing and the, you know, which is the more like, let's just have establishment conservative policies with uh, the kind of angry wing, which was, probably smaller than Trump has certainly made it much larger as his conservative media. But I mean, maybe DeSantis is a continuation of that. But, you know, I think others like Hawley sort of moving it even more in a, in a populist direction. And what people in the Republican Party seem to not like about the establishment Mitch McConnell wing is that they're like all for the big global corporations that are helping China and are too woke. And so there's sort of this growing even deeper anti-establishment, anti-corporate sentiment among Republican voters is is my sense that Mike Pence is, is not angry enough. He's not enough of a fighter and it's hard to have it both ways. So I I don't know who's going to win out, but I think Trump was a transitional figure. And my, my sense is that right now, the, the, the angry, own the libs, stand up to the woke corporations faction is going to win out. Interesting. All right. I want to hear James on this. Then I'm going to move us into contemporary issues for a second. I'll, I'll stop there for you. I'll, I'll set you up, if you will. Perfect. Uh, look, I want to say just, and obviously... Trump had said and done a lot of things, but in general, in general, Trump's kind of entry into the 2016 presidential campaign was number one, refreshing. It was refreshing, not in a, like, you don't have to like him and agree with what he's saying to find it 
refreshing. He's bringing an energy and an unpredictability into what otherwise had gotten to be. And this is someone who works in politics, had studied politics, has gotten pretty staid and boring, right? And I think that's, first of all, it's drawing a lot more people in. It's also making it a lot more unpredictable. And, you know, we mentioned critical race theory, and this is a great example. Why is this issue constantly being talked about on the right? I have friends who email me and say, well, it's like communism. It's taking over the world. It's because they don't know what else to talk about. It's because the policies, I think, are there's nowhere safe to go, right? Mike Pence doesn't know what to talk about. He gives every speech. He'll start by saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a conservative, and I'm a Republican in that order. Well, great. What does that mean? And then it's like kind of the same old, same old. The reaction to Trump was, yes, partly about I think, the anger. But a lot of it was just like, here's somebody who doesn't sound like everybody else, who isn't acting like everybody else, who isn't doing things like everybody else. In the South Carolina presidential primary, he accused George W. Bush of making America less safe. And he won. He won. This should be a a sign. This should be a sign that, you know, trying to figure out an error-free, safe, prone type of way to win presidential elections is not going to work. I think you see this frustration on the left in the Democratic Party. You see it on the right in the Republican Party right now. And I think it all comes back to the fact that Trump himself is not the cause of the change. Trump is a reflection of the change. The first sitting elected official in the United States Senate and Congress to endorse him was Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions had, was, was touting Donald Trump issues on immigration, on trade and foreign policy for over a decade or not more before Trump. You can go back to Pat Buchanan. This has been ongoing for a very long time. And so I think it's really, we, we don't know what's going to happen unless we look to the policies and we look to the people and we say, what is it that they're frustrated about? And why isn't the system in our institutions, why aren't they working in a way to at least adjudicate their claims, reconcile them to outcomes, and to let them kind of have a sense and ownership of what happens in our country? Because right now, everybody is pissed off. I don't know anybody who's happy. right? People on the left are pissed. People on the right are pissed. People in the center are pissed. No one likes the status quo, but it doesn't really change. And I think that itself is a testament to the complete lack of substance that our national politics has become. And I think it's really important to kind of focus on the policies to try to get a sense of what's going to be successful in the future. How was that, Julia? Did I set you up? Perfectly. When you destroy institutions and trust in institutions, and then you you end up in a situation where people are unhappy with the status quo, it's very difficult to agree on an alternative. And that's difficult. I mean, that's intrinsically difficult, which is why we need institutions. And when, you know, the the goal of politics in a lot of ways, and I think this has been a project of the right and to some extent also the left, is to, you know, is to denigrate those institutions and let them degrade. That's what you're going to get. So I have a third theory of Trump. I like this. We're sort of developing theories of Trump. And Lee has him as a transitional figure, and James has him as sort of a, a kind of breakaway from politics as usual and emphasizes the importance of his criticism of the Republican Party from within, which I think is a really kind of key point. Um, and a key sort of tension in Trumpism as as you sort of see people 
run on criticizing the establishment and then join the political establishment. I think that that predates Trump, but is especially um, important to that story. Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson. Yeah. Well, I was. Yeah. So anyway, I want to offer a third theory of Trump, which is that Trump is was the, the figure that provided the cover to Republican elites, particularly after Obama's presidency, but kind of just in general. And here I'm in some ways, I'm kind of answering my own question about like, where is where is Trump's mark in Ted Cruz asking Ketanji Brown Jackson about anti-racist baby? So I think it's tempting to to think that that's Trumpism, and certainly you know Trump has had a megaphone to do things like talk about critical race theory, which is you know no one has ever talked about it as much as people have talked about it in the past year. But in some ways, I feel like that's this is actually a very old piece of. It's a very old strain in politics. It's not exclusively a Republican strain, but it, it just, to me, it feels like very old uh, racist tropes. And what was Trump's impact on that? I guess, what was Trump's relationship with that? And I think what Trump did was, in some ways, was, you know, open up space to, to say those things. But more importantly, was provided temporary cover to Republican elites. And I think this is essentially what happened in 2016. In the wake of Obama's presidency, it was very clear they were kind of racialized movements of opposition. And there were people in the Republican coalition who were really uncomfortable with that. And so one way to distance yourself from that, while also reaping the benefits of those votes and keeping that coalition together, is to allow someone to be the mouthpiece of those viewpoints, but also have that person not be a real member of your party. And I think that's partly why it took Republican elites so long to respond seriously to Trump, because they didn't take him that seriously. And it seemed like, OK, this is someone who provides some cover. Well, that is that has on its own become a collective action problem. And that is no longer that is really no longer possible. And so Trump has sort of he's elevated those voices at the elite level. He has elevated those voices at the mass level. Everything has been kind of blown open with regard to those attitudes. But I see Trump as maybe sort of similar to Lee as a kind of transitional figure. And I do think that there's a lot of truth to what, what James is saying about Trump as a kind of fresh figure and his politics, you know, had been deeply stayed um, and deeply unresponsive. And I don't think Trump did anything to fix either of those things substantively. But I think that that was part of his his support particularly among people who maybe were paying only kind of partial attention. But let's think about who the last three candidates were in the 2016 Republican primary. Kasich, just because he was too stubborn to get out. he was No, I don't think people thought he was going to be the nominee. Who were the last two candidates in the 2016 presidential election? It was Donald Trump and it was Ted Cruz. And Ted Cruz was a sign, I think, a reflection of this ongoing kind of frustration with the kind of politics as usual, business as usual approach to things. And so again, I think Trump is, is a reflection of that frustration, not so much the cause of it, but that I think it can explain why he has been successful in the past and whoever wins in the future, I think, isn't going to be playing off the old playbooks. James, I, I think they you're can. avoiding Julia's question, so I'm gonna put it to you more bluntly. Were there a bunch of racist sentiments among Republican elites that Trump allowed them to say more more broadly? I mean, I, I have no idea. 
I honestly don't. I'm not trying to uh, dodge the question. I'm not trying to pretend like it. I mean, are there racist Republicans? I'm sure. Yes, there are. We know that. Are there racist Democrats? Yes, we are. That doesn't. My point is. Did Ted Cruz have racist sentiments? Did Does Josh Hawley have racist sentiments? Or are they just spouting the lines that they think are popular because Trump made them popular? Right. So one of the things, and I know both Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, and they're both very, very intelligent people. I don't agree with everything they say and do, but you know what I try to do is I try to put myself in their shoes and try to try to think. It's not like they were saying like, "Man, I wish I could say this, but I can't." But now that Trump said it, I can say it. Like I don't think that's the calculation. I don't think that's the thought process. In fact, I'm pretty. I, I know it's not the thought. I process. mean, Ted Cruz sends his sends his kids to a school where they teach critical race theory. So you know, <laughs> I mean this. This is not really my point. It's fine if you guys want to talk about this, but like, I'm not really asking, are these particular Republican elites racist or not? I think there are Yelly. racist currents in American politics, and they run differently through the two parties. Um, but I mean, I think we can safely assume that almost everything that Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz do, they're doing to, to build national political following or appeal to their constituents and I think that those those sorts of relationships are kind of fluid and dynamic. Um, but I do think that there like there's no question that the Republican Party kind of ran on dog whistling to some degree, right? There's the Southern strategy. There's the Willie Horton stuff. But that's my point. There's nothing else. Right. Right. Like we like that's my point. Like it's just like minimum wage, maybe. But do we like it's? I mean, policy is such in flux right now. They don't agree on taxes. They don't agree on healthcare. They don't agree on immigration. They don't agree on foreign policy. They don't agree on anything. But yet we continue to talk talk about a trope, a polarization. But we continue to talk about these. They don't agree on anything, so they have to find something to talk about. You mean within the Republican Party? And within the Democratic Party. This is why nothing happens. I think we're kind of a field and I want to bring us back in and then we gotta then we gotta wrap up. So here's here are the, the questions that I wanna ask. One and I wanna do this in like a fairly briefly, like we did with twenty twenty four lightning round. Like, has Trump and his his sort of relationship with Putin and all the Russia business, has that put Republicans in a difficult position now that Russia's invaded Ukraine and that invasion is very unpopular with the American public? Has this put Republicans in a weird position? I mean, George Bush looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul, right? I mean, wasn't that? I mean, and Obama has, I mean, all presidents have been beguiled by Putin over the past like two decades. But the Ukraine stuff, the withholding military aid from Ukraine, I think there's, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know to what extent there's like secret Russian agents infiltrating uh, the Republican Party, but I think there's that the, what there is 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 a reflexive response to be against whatever Biden's doing. So first, the, the response was, well, if if Biden's on the side of of Ukraine, w what are we doing in Ukraine? Now the response seems to have shifted to, oh, Biden's not doing enough. We need to start World War Three, and you know, I think it's challenging if the. Republican Party is trying to get on messages just being anti-Biden, what that message should be. Are we, are we being too aggressive, not aggressive enough? I mean, I think there are, as James said before, there, there are different views on foreign policy and foreign policy hasn't really been a central issue in our politics for a while. And so the parties ha have not figured out what their messages are. I mean, you know, I mean, there's a anti-war faction with the Democrats too. 
that would say, well, how much are we going to commit to this? I mean, Ukraine's far away and yeah, NATO's important, but like maybe we were too aggressive in trying to expand into NATO. Yeah, I think some Democrats think that, right? So yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on this either. I think that's right that the the sort of impulse with the Republicans is to be against whatever Biden is doing. And there's a lot of different directions you can take that in terms of are we doing too much or too little? And most of what I've seen is sort of like, we should be doing more. I mean, I think you're right. There's a lot of cover provided. Again, I think Trump being a relative outsider does give Republicans a little cover on this of, well, you know, we, we didn't all agree with him anyway. He was kind of out there doing his own thing anyway. And so now we we're free to kind of form our own views about what's going on. I also sort of agree with James that a real thorough answer to to these questions starts with with Bush and with Obama. So I, I think that's that's a key part of that too. Um, but it's been interesting to me how little trouble it seems like a lot of elite Republicans, but also maybe Republicans in the mass electorate have have had kind of sliding into a new set of arguments around the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I also wrote at 538 about the kind of culture war impact of that. And Dan Dresner has an interesting piece where he takes a somewhat of the opposite view. I want to bring us home very quickly with the question of, is Trumpism in decline? Is it the dominant strain in the Republican Party? So let's let's have a lightning round. All right, James, lightning round. What is Trumpism? Perfect. Lee? That's my reaction as well. If Trumpism is just standing for nothing but being against the liberal Democrats, socialist, Marxist, woke, critical race theory, radicals, then Trumpism is alive and well. If Trumpism is some set of coherent America first policies, then that's news to me. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, so I think people should read my piece. Obviously. They should definitely read your piece. (laughs) And then read it again. Share with a friend. I'm trying to keep my commentary here. I'm trying to keep the insightfulness of my commentary down so that our listeners don't feel so fulfilled that they don't go and read your piece. (laughs) No. Yeah, clearly. (laughs) This is the amuse-bouche approach to podcasting. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, I think that inevitably as... You have an influential figure and an influential set of ideas, and it doesn't mean that those ideas necessarily are like super robust or policy driven. But I think Trumpism is, I think it's a distinct thing. Um, I think it's a distinct political style, if nothing else. And I think we're seeing it simultaneously on the rise and being interpreted in ways that will ultimately lead to it becoming something else. But I think, in, you know, in contrast with like a Ronald Reagan type figure, we have a real real and persistent, if very small, um, anti-Trump faction within the Republican Party. And one of my predictions, I'll end with my 2024 prediction, which is that I just don't see any nominee who can keep all of these different factions happy. Well, the way they do it is by the threat of the radical Democrats. Let's, you know, as they say in show business, let's leave them wanting more. So this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.